Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. There's a lot, obviously, there's a lot that people are nervous about and scared about, but at least I'm not in a position where I have to like furlough employees or whatever. Yeah. So I'm really thankful for that. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, we've just, we had this big plan this year to uh, have our big sort of debutante ball coming out party. And uh, that may change a little bit, given that all of our conferences are yes, canceled, you know? <laughs> online. Exactly. New interactive video exactly. coming your way. But it's all good. You know, it's all good. We'll just kind of pivot. And um, we've, we've been able to um, offer our tools to like some state and local governments as well as other companies so that right. they can, you know, just for free so that they can um, track all this stuff because a lot of people just aren't really prepared for it. That is very clear. Yeah. And some areas more prepared than others. So certainly the healthcare facilities in rural areas seem to be quite unprepared. Yeah, and it's really the wild. The are also unprepared, but at least seem to be doing something about it. <laughs> yes. Yes. We, um, I, I saw yesterday that there were still like six states that weren't like ruling out people getting together in public areas. That's right. What's up with that? Uh, I don't know. Um, I guess denial is a powerful drug, right? Yeah, like I think there were still people at the beaches, and I saw like I'm sure you saw this too, like that bar in Nashville, where it was like uh, mobbed. The bar in Nashville, and then the Spring Breakers in yes. Florida and Texas. Yeah, unbelievable. So very interesting um, things we could say about intergenerational tension over this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For real, it's yeah. a big thing. It is a big thing, and you um, probably saw the boomer remover hashtag last weekend that didn't last very wrong, long. I didn't see that. Middle schoolers calling this the boomer remover. Oh, my God. Um, which is a little harsh, but, I mean, I think the reality yeah. is most of most people who are young have parents, you know, and so we're not as, as intergenerationally disconnected as we might think. But um, you are seeing, I think, some young people saying, why are you restricting me when I, I'm not even going to get that sick? And plus, you're not doing anything about climate change. So I uh, don't see a lot of two-way... That's the argument. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, that is it. That, that's an interesting argument. Um, wow, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around it. It's like, well, I'm gonna, I don't care if you get sick because you don't care what happens to the world that I'm gonna have to live in. Exactly, <laughs> you're, you're undermining my rights with your voting patterns, uh, specifically around climate change, and yet you are asking me to restrict my rights when I'm not even gonna get sick. Right, wow. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> complex thing, and it's interesting to see, you know, the United States is kind of a crazy country for many reasons, but it's really like a collection of a bunch of countries, and you yeah. get these sort of regional, cultural differences and everyone responds to it extremely i mean again just look at like san francisco's response versus you know the tennessee response or lack thereof that's absolutely. a massively different response to it absolutely there's, there's quite a lot of political polarization around this um in terms of kind of responses and levels of concern and so there are red blue state divisions there are also interesting things to be said about Arguably, things will be much worse in the cities, not just because of concentration, but because people travel more. On the other hand, if things do hit rural areas, um, I'm not getting the sense that people have a lot of um, ventilators and that kind of thing. Um, and so, and obviously there's more old people in the South and more people without healthcare. So um, it will be interesting to see how this all looks in another couple of weeks. Yeah, I saw a, um, so that's an interesting issue because like the shutdown of certain services are also in some cases creating like worse situations. Like I saw a video of something from the UK where they like shut down like half of the, the subways or something. And so you just saw this, this train car just packed with people. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like nobody knows what to do. So everyone's just like doing something and then the unintended consequences of it are you know, nobody knows, like, no one yeah. knows, oh, wow, that was a really terrible idea until, like, it, it happens. Exactly. exactly. Unbelievable. 
Yeah. So anyways, um, I was excited to get you on. I read that article in Compliance Week that you were featured in. And I thought, man, she had some really cool things to say. I'd love to get Allison on. And you were so gracious to come on in this in sure. short order. So this podcast is about um, really trying to elevate ethics and compliance to be a, a strategic lever. I think uh -huh. in the past, it has been a check the box function that people yeah. get kind of burrowed into. But in my mind, it's this, it's this totally underutilized asset in most organizations. And so I'm trying to get thought leaders on here like yourself to talk about their experience, their perspective, and really provide tools for people who are in our business, essentially, or in our line of work to help elevate them out of this, uh, this check the box function to really drive forward strategy. And I think during this um, coronavirus pandemic response, there's a huge op opportunity for ethics compliance folks to step up and really really show what their potential is. It's, there's a lot of, um, light bulbs at the top, so to speak, that are still off. And I think this decade, hopefully in short order, those light bulbs can start turning back on. Let's hope so. There yeah. is a lot, there is a lot, there is a window of opportunity, I think, for the ethics and compliance function right now. Um, or another way to think about it would be the decision-making power the ethics and compliance officer is given inside the organization right now will give you a very good sense of how responsible and forward-looking that organization is. So we could almost take these responsible business moves um, as a proxy for how long-term thinking is within a business and how much public and stakeholder trust is valued. So I think it's, a, um, it's going to be an interesting acid test of a lot of things. Tell me some more about that, that long-term thinking. Well, I mean, I think the, the compliance article that you read, the journalist originally sort of wrote to me and said, um, you know, why would companies spend more money on things like paid sick leave and the various sorts of initiatives that are being described, uh, you know, protections for employees, protection of payroll, uh, a UK supermarket called Morrison's is paying its suppliers immediately, things like that. So the exam question was, why would a business do that? And I think the answer is, if you are thinking short term, and we don't currently know how short term short term is, right. then of course you're not going to do it because you're worried about the next quarter's results and how you're going to keep afloat through this. If you have the resources to think that you will keep going long term, then I think there is an argument about your reputation, about how you motivate employees, about how you are seen by the public on social media and in the media, um, and the value of the trust that you might be able to build or retain during this period. And I think we could make a very compelling argument given that various studies say reputation is 30% of the overall value of a company, that, there is a business case for doing the right thing in the short term. Of course, if you do the right thing um, and you carry on paying your employees theoretically, and this goes on for six, nine months, that's a different proposition. But at the moment we are seeing a lot of big businesses um, really trying to put out signals to the market and to their employees that they're going to stand by them. And I would say there is a very strong long-term business case for that. I think people will remember who behaved well during this crisis and who didn't. And I think that's a great point. And I think I've also been kind of interested, it's been interesting to see how companies on the other, other side of that fence are acting. So I've heard about some companies who are putting their people on what they'll call a quote unquote, zero hour schedule, yeah. which prevents, so they're effectively not making any money, but they can't go and file for unemployment because they're still, it still looks like they're employed. Mm. Yeah, that's not great. Um, you would, yeah, you would uh, not be very happy if you were one of those employees. I mean, I think as well, just the gig economy in general. So Amazon delivery people, mm -hmm. contract workers, restaurant workers, um, all the people that are most in danger of infecting the rest of the general public are the people most least likely to have healthcare and sick leave. So you've Good got point. this really um, interesting tension where I think many companies would find, you know, making those, those employees permanent or providing more benefits would be completely unaffordable. And yet these are precisely the people that are gonna have to keep working as long as possible and endangering everybody else. 
huge point. That is a huge, it's a mind blowing point. That's like your second mind blowing point that you've made <laughs> today. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So these are the people who are going to continue to work, but they don't have the tools they need tools, meaning, you know, support, meaning, uh, benefits and so forth that kind of endanger the rest of us. It's that same kind of short-term thinking that, um, you know, it seems like some organizations, um, they have this line or this sort of veil between their internal employee uh, reputation and their external sort of brand reputation. And they think that those are two different things. But yes. again, I think this is going to show us that, you know, if you treat your employees poorly during this thing, what do you think those people are doing on social media and talking to all their friends? They're saying what an awful company they deal with. And then that creates so much dissonance for, you know, somebody who's not working for them, but is a potential client of theirs when they see the, you know, the bright, shiny um, commercial with the people hugging and the heart toward, you know, the public and all that, that it makes it seem very inauthentic. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, a few things. And I think we're really seeing a kind of culmination or an illustration of a lot of long-term trends here, right? Because the, there has been, so at the beginning of the Trump presidency, there was a lot of conversations about CEO activism. And there are a bunch of CEOs, particularly in tech and particularly around immigration, who started saying, you know, this is what I stand for and this is what we're going to do about social issues. And during the last four years, you've gradually seen that trend more from being something that's very leader driven. So from the top down to something that's very bottom up. So you've got employee, a huge rise in employee activism and employees demanding that businesses take certain positions. The most obvious recent example is Amazon and a bunch of employees, you know, wrote this big position, petition, broke their confidentiality agreements to, to lay out what they thought Bezos should be doing on climate change and responded critically to his $10 billion donation uh, because he's still working with the, Amazon's still working with oil and gas. But one of the really interesting things I think we've been seeing with this employee activism trend exactly as you describe is employees using the power of hyper-transparency to leak information into the public domain. So you see this again, particularly in tech, Google, Facebook, Netflix, that big expose of away, or the Slack conversations with the, the luggage company away. And this is massively powerful. It is a way to use asymmetric power. And for companies that still think it's all okay as long as we've got good lawyers and good non-disclosure agreements, that's really old fashioned. Totally. There are a bunch of journalists and the, the weaponization of negative information by employees is a big deal. And of course, it's gonna be a big deal during this pandemic. And then I think the final point you'd make that I'd, you made that I'd just like to echo is that the division between the communities we work with and the people that work inside our buildings is not a sharp line, not right. least because of these contract workers that are kind of on the edge of the organization, but your employees are also members of the general public. And so I would say employees are your most powerful interest group and you'd really better start there because if you don't, that's gonna affect your reputation. I love how you put that. Um, something we talk about a lot is you can never have a company that, you're in, that your clients love if it's not full of people who also love that company. So if that's true, then the most important thing is to treat your people right and build a culture that's authentic and that resonates with your people and that your people, that cause your people to love the purpose of your organization and difference that that organization is making. Because to your point, otherwise it just turns into this really inauthentic thing and you say, oh, well, it's a pleasure to serve you, but I don't really care about serving you because I hate my job and I'm staring at the clock. When can I get off of work? Absolutely. And, and we all know that instinctively when you talk to someone in customer service, it's very obvious whether, whether they're a contractor that hates their employer or not. I mean, I think another big indication is how a company treats its suppliers. And that will, again, be very, very visible to internal employees. And so I think a lot of what you see around responsible business, which is a, obviously a different thing from ethics and compliance, so they're increasingly merging, is this idea that it's 
about marketing and it's about putting out glossy brochures about how great we are and here's our value statements and here are all the great things we did. Um, I've even heard there was an article about six months ago that described corporate social responsibility as the paramilitary wing of the marketing department. <laughs> but um, this is not in fact the case anymore because the public is very attuned to hypocrisy very cynical about these things, recognizes that they are being treated as marketing efforts. And so there's this real push to, for companies to put their money where their mouths are. And then I think this also is really significant for compliance officers because you're seeing obviously an expansion into more ethical value-based considerations and away from strict regulatory risk. We're also seeing regulation is becoming more complex and more unpredictable. And then, so if you look, if you want to understand what's going to happen next, it's good to look at responsible business and CSR trends because what starts as an issue of public concern over social responsibility can be a regulatory issue of the future. So, What's CSR trends? Uh, corporate social responsibility. Got it. Why do you think the public is so attuned now to this hypocrisy or the inauthenticity of a corporate you know, social responsibility as a sort of extension of marketing as opposed to it being an authentic, genuine thing? Um, I think it's partly about transparency it's just much harder to maintain corporate confidentiality because partly because of all the employee leaks we just talked about so there's been a lot of information we could think about things like the panama papers and the paradise papers so it's become very clear to people how things like tax avoidance and offshore ownership affects property prices in New York and San Francisco. And so um, there's a lot more information also in the public domain about the gap between what companies are saying and where they're spending, particularly via trade associations. So another thing you see quite often is a company saying, well, we really care about responsible business and here's all the things we're doing. And they're also then paying politicians or lobbying for legislation that's gonna undermine everything that they're doing. Right. And that's becoming much clearer to people, those relationships, the relationship between political spending and what you're saying is becoming much clearer. And then the final thing I'd say is just young people. So people that are under 35 and then even more under 25, incredibly more sophisticated in their use of social media and their understanding of communication. And so it's very hard for someone my age to imagine what it would be like to grow up online, but young people have grown up online. Right. They don't make this online offline distinction. And I think they're much more savvy about reading and interpreting how corporates try to communicate. So there's a much tighter loop between what you do and the reputational feedback. Um, and that kind of comes back to this thing you brought up before, this sort of neo-employee activism. And I'd love to kind of spend a couple of minutes talking about that some more. Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Why, how does it differ from the sort of old employee activism, which maybe is sort of the birthplace of like unions? And why is it hard for, you know, old fashioned leaders to wrap their head around the opportunity that I think it presents? Great questions. Um, I think there is still some employee activism that is focused on traditional employee concerns. Um, you've seen some attempts at unionizing at Google, for example, and, and tech, young people in tech are becoming interested in unionizing. But where this is really different is that there is a lot of employee activism that is not directly about the benefits to me as an employee, either financially or otherwise. So there's been activism around the treatment of contract workers by permanent employees. There's been activism around things like climate change and gender and who a company does business with. So again, back to tech. Um, employees at Google um, and a bunch of other companies objecting to companies having contracts with ICE and contracts with the Pentagon. So these are things that if the employee was just acting in their self-interest, a contract with ICE is very lucrative. It raises the stock price, you might get better pay, but employees are actually objecting on moral and corporate responsibility grounds outside their self-interest. So that is incredibly new. 
I've forgotten your second question. You had a really good follow-up question. So did I. I forgot it. Too. <laughs> no, um, why is it so hard for these old school oh, yes. um, leaders to not see this for the opportunity it is? Oh, yeah. So I think it's scary. I think that, you know, I've, I've written in the past about how I think what is happening in a way is that employees are trying to democratize the companies that they work with. And I would also tie this to wider political frustration. Like, mm -hmm. I think no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you are really frustrated with politics right now. Totally. You are really frustrated with a, a political cycle. The outcome of election results doesn't necessarily reflect popular opinion. You only get to vote once every two years. There's a bunch of apathy. So I think a lot of the frustration that people have with policymakers is getting channeled towards employees. So, and you're sort of, so you're starting to see employees demand a share in decision-making. And obviously if you've been leading one of these companies for a very long time, when I was first in the workforce, I didn't think this way. I didn't think I had a say in how the leadership should, should run itself. So I think it's very difficult and disconcerting for leaders to respond to this downward pressure. They're used to having a lot more agency and a lot more decision-making power. And then I genuinely think it's very difficult to respond to these calls to do something about values because everyone's got a different concept of what that should be. So I have spoken to companies that are really saying, we're getting all these young workers in and these young workers are really querying our work with the oil and gas industry, for example. But our older senior management want to keep working with the oil and gas industry. So how do you align when across right. generations there are completely different values and completely different understanding of what the priority should be? You can't put it to a vote. So I think companies are really struggling to outline a clear moral narrative and outline what their value should be in the face of all this internal pressure. And there's not really uh, a function whose role this is. I mean, it's kind of the role of ethics and compliance. There's a role for human resources. There's a role for government relations. There's a role for risk and strategy. There isn't one function that deals with these things. I've heard of CEOs setting up task forces and thinking about their value strategies, but there's also no one to delegate to. So that, going back to your kind of initial tee up, I think is a really interesting angle for an ambitious ethics and compliance officer to try to think more strategically about values and reputation and what issues to engage on so that you can be credible and really trying to work with HR, I think in particular, to harness this voice and, and to channel it into something useful. But I think all these issues are just starting to hit. Gen Z is still just graduating and coming into the workforce. So I have a prediction this is all gonna get much harder. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, by the end of the decade, by the end of the, um you know, by 2030, 75% of the workers are going to be millennials who espouse a lot more of the values that you're talking about. And I was kind of struck as you were kind of describing this, you know, these different values at these different tiers. It's kind of like a symphony where the, the instruments are all kind of tuned to different things. Like they're not all tuned the same way. And it seems like it's a different prioritization of what's important. So the newer generation, I think, and maybe you can speak to this, it seems like you know, the older generation who's fine to continue to work with oil and gas, it's because they have, I don't know, dollars as a higher level, you know, it's a higher priority to them than this other generation. So how does the ethics and compliance office serve as sort of the conductor to get everyone to tune right? And to your point, you can't vote on values, but how do we get sort of this reconciliation across these different lines or these different sort of generational tiers within an organization to be able to push forward in the right direction? Or is it just gonna be a waiting game until power shifts to the new generation? There's gotta be a way to soup to- Probably a mix. I mean, I do think the shift to the new generation is very significant. I've been surprised by how slow some companies have been to pick this up. But as we both agree, this is only just starting to play out. I do think values have shifted from being a sort of generic bit of wording you have in your code of conduct to something that's very contested and very negotiated. I think it is really important, therefore, for company leadership to make sure that they're coming up with something that's a little bit more generic, that if they are going to take, you know, if they're going to fund charities, if they're going to take positions on particular issues, that they can be sure they're being consistent with their political spending, that they're being consistent with their client acceptance, that whatever it is, it is 
consistent and explainable. And I think there is, I, I actually don't like the word corporate purpose. People talk about it a lot. It's very buzzwordy and I'm not sure what people, if the people always know what they mean by it, but I think it's important to be able to articulate something that maybe everybody won't agree with. Maybe Gen Z won't agree with, and maybe your 60 year olds won't agree with, but you can explain it. You can relate it to something. You can relate it to your core business and that you've got something that's clear and logical and makes sense. And then I think if that is explained fairly and it, and it's not just narrative, but it's reflected in actual behavior processes, policies, et cetera, I think people will be able to accept that. Is it hard? Is it going to get increasingly hard, you think, to retain talent over the next decade if for companies who don't get this? And if they don't get it, let's say you're working in a company, you're you working in a company that doesn't seem to get it. What kind of things are you doing to help kind of turn the tide or help turn those light bulbs on? Yeah, I think, well, I think one of the issues is there's much less loyalty, um, you know, employee loyalty in younger generations as well for excellent reasons. You know, they have a lot of financial challenges. They have not been, you know, again, like your average 60 year old maybe had the concept you join a company and stay there for 20 years. Right. I think now everybody, and they very often have been forced into this situation, but the idea of having a portfolio career and running certain things and having a side gig and be your own brand and all that kind of thing. So I think young people just vote with their feet. I think you're bang on. They are no, but none of companies that are perceived to be digging their heels in here are, are gonna have a huge problem attracting and retaining young employees. Another thing you're seeing, of course, which is mitigating this for now, is older employees aren't retiring. So you've got um, somebody I know wrote about this and called it the boomer blockade. So there's actually a lot of um, stagnant kind of management teams that aren't retiring. So Gen X actually and millennials are also getting more frustrated because they right. can't advance. So when those retirements start, that will sort of free up more space. But of course, people are living longer and working longer as well. So they, I think really this intergenerational um, context for companies is fascinating um, and going to become more and more difficult to manage because there are such different belief systems. Yeah, and so much of it is values and the reputation of a business is really just the sum of all the actions that are taking place within that organization yeah. and those are all done by people and those are all rooted in the emotions of those people so to the extent that there are these different value sets and there are these different responses within the organization to the things that that organization itself are doing you can kind of create this either harmony if everyone's pointing in the same direction yeah. this dissonance as folks you know grates against one it resonates with another if you so let's kind of jump back into the um the pandemic thing that's going on right now let's talk about some like actionable tactics that folks who are in our, you know, in our game, in the ethics and compliance game or in the HR game, what are some actionable things you think that they can be doing, not only sort of um, tactically, right, to um, address this thing and sort of put out fires and so forth, but also kind of speak a little bit to that sort of strategic impact that I think if they were totally unleashed, they could really make a huge difference on their organization with. Great question. So I think, you know, one big question here, of course, is we don't know how long all this is going to go on. Right. But there are a number of, I think, very practical considerations for ethics and compliance officers right now. I mean, presumably a bunch of them are in the middle of ongoing investigations and due diligence and suddenly everybody is working remotely. So I think for sort of office-based companies, I think something that needs to be done in the short term is putting in place measures to increase team effectiveness and cooperation in the context of remote working. So that is going to be a very big adjustment. Um, I think you need to make much more effort to build culture. Obviously, it's going to be much easier if you're used to working together. I think things to do around communication so people don't feel forced to be online the whole time. Um, all of that is going to be kind of front of mind for people that can't remote work, work remotely. I think we've covered a lot of that already in this conversation. I think there are real concerns about sick leave and paid healthcare. If a company can afford to do it, I think that's probably the single biggest impact that they can have. Um, 
you know, I've just seen the UK government's going to cover 80% of laid off employees, but um, that we'll see what happens over here in the US. Um, I think, though, for compliance officers and ethics officers, it's really going to be really important to go to senior leadership and just emphasize that precedents are going to get set now. People will remember how you behave now. Um, you need to be able to stand by it in the long term. This thing is going to end. And I think we will really see um, two sets of kind of thinking emerging, one of which is going to take a long term position, is going to really think about public trust, is going to really try and retain employees and retain trust for as long as, as possible. I'm not saying that's easy if this goes on as long as some predictions are. And other companies that are just going to do what you describe, lay off employees or furlough them or say, we'll hope we'll reopen in a few months. Um, and, and see what happens there. And I'm really talking about big businesses because I think the, the worst thing is all the small businesses and restaurants that are gonna go out of business. So I like this move by Facebook who does have some trust to rebuild, but they're making, um, you know, supporting small businesses. So for companies that are able to do that, I think that's great maintaining your suppliers and so on. Cause the last thing we wanna see is more, more concentration in the hands of very, very few companies. So that's what I'm kind of most worried about. So I think if I'm a compliance officer in a, in a big company, I'm going to be trying to make all these points about reputation, about trust, about long-term retention, long-term employee and supplier and customer relationships. And I would hope that that is getting across. And I hope that via this process, I get a little bit more traction with the CEO and he thinks of me as somebody um, who's going to do more than set up a monitoring process and make sure I've got policies and procedures. Yeah, because those check the box things like those are obviously things that you need. Those are sort of making sure the car stays on the road and stuff like that. But there's a lot that uh, that um, somebody in this role can do to help accelerate that car. And I think you're talking about that longer term focus that's looking further down the road than just kind of making sure that the car is not hitting the rumble strips on the side on the side yeah. of the highway. Exactly. Though, I mean, you know, I think I think the job of everybody's day-to-day -day job is also going to get much harder in the short term. So um, I think, you know, there's a lot to be done that's a little bit more basic that I haven't mentioned. I think about communicating to employees about responsible social distancing and wash your, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. Can you make sure that you are being very clear with everybody. I mean, I've seen businesses saying, no, you've got to keep coming to work. I mean, that's crazy. Um, so I think, you know, proper medical information, proper advice, timely communication, all of these things are going to be incredibly important for, for all your employees during this thing. Proactive communication. Yeah. So that's, those are, those are great. Um, those are great pieces of advice. I just got this picture as you were talking about this, you said something like, everyone's gonna remember what your responses are through this. And it's kind of like if you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane and the airplane kind of dips and they just get into a full panic and they're weeping and they're crying and then it yeah. sort of levels out. Like you can't yeah. get that image out of, out of your head of this big burly guy who just was crying like a baby, you know? Exactly. Um, it's, it's in these, you know, a lot of people say that during times like this, it builds the character of a company and I think to kind of to what you're saying and what we've maybe been talking about at a deeper level, it really reveals the character of a company. Absolutely. And I think opens up the potential for profound change. So I'm, people right. have started writing about this and what are the long-term impacts of this whole thing going to be? Is everyone going to decide that actually they like working from home and educating their children at home? And why do we have offices anyway? So I think the other thing is in a deep crisis, possibility things we were told were impossible become possible right so if you're just reacting um you're gonna lose control of everything that's that's happening so i think as well to the degree you can try and anticipate and plan and seize the moment and kind of seize how you're communicating and how you're setting precedents that's really helpful i'm not saying it's easy no it's not easy and there's so much change going on and there's so much fear on underlying it. And there's, you know, we're, we're, we're in uncharted water. So, you know, I think everyone's kind of doing their best, but to your point, you kind of see what people are made of. And I just want to talk about a couple of things that just re recently came out. I think there was this Senator who just like sold his whole portfolio before the crash while saying that, you know, 
don't worry about the virus. Yeah. And then you got these companies that have spent billions and billions of their dollars um, over the last several years doing stock buybacks that now are going to have need massive tax payer bailouts. Speak to that a little bit, if you could, if you'd like to. Yeah, well, this is these things are very hot button, obviously. I mean, I think one of the things is is that, that people are angry about and that has arguably led to our polarization and current political situation is that there was not any accountability after the 2008 financial crisis. So no one went to jail or no one memorable. The banks were bailed out. Everybody went back to business as usual. And I think we've seen societal pressure increasing. We've obviously seen inequality increase. We've had over the last few years a booming market, but the tide goes out and you find out who's swimming naked as, 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 right. as the saying goes. So it'll be interesting to see who gets bailed out and on what terms. Um, that's obviously a very live conversation right now. Um, but I would not underestimate the level of public anger against big business. The mood seems to be to go more straight to people rather than businesses. Um, that's obviously a bit of a kind of tug of war. But um, I think that the popular thing to do would be to compensate people or to find a way to kind of protect people from the rigors of unemployment rather than bailing out the airlines. Um, So we'll see how all that pans out. If it doesn't pan out well, then I think public anger is only going to increase. There was a survey at the beginning of the year that predicted that said 40% of countries in the world at the moment are having popular protests. So people taking to the streets, we obviously can no longer take to the streets um, for now, but um, it doesn't mean that anger has gone away. It doesn't mean that resistance to incompetent and corrupt governments has gone away. Um, To your point about, about the um, senators selling their stock, I think corruption and abuse of power, which used to be 20 years ago, like the driest topic that no one was interested in, apart from a few nerds at Transparency International, is now an issue that the general public is enraged about. It's partly why we have a crisis of trust in politics that extends to a crisis of trust in business when businesses seem to be lobbying, for example, to undermine climate change or undermine whatever it is. So trust is the most valuable currency here. We keep going back to this theme of trust. And I think, I think this is the theme. And I would again say to everybody thinking they can continue pushing off and deferring it. And as long as my company gets paid off, you are setting yourselves up for wider societal disruption that affects us all. What I'm hoping happens as part of this pandemic is that we all start to question how individualistic we are. America is an incredibly individualistic society. There is this, you know, as long as it's not my problem, it's not my problem. You know, I don't want to pay healthcare costs for other people. I don't want to cover other people's benefits. Um, You know, as long as I can look after me and my family and make money and be self-made, everything's fine. And I'm British, we're very much like that as well there. Yeah, and what is that? What is that rooted in? Is that just the Western individualism? Individualism. I mean, Asia is very different, much more collective mindset, much stronger view of the common good. Um, But I think one thing a pandemic does is illustrate rather um, vividly how closely connected we all are and that we can't really isolate ourselves from the rest of society. And all these articles you read about billionaires moving to bunkers in New Zealand or moving to Mars, well... I find this ridiculous. I mean, they, they would be better off supporting policies that would be better for the greater good. And then there won't be people with pitchforks at their door. So I think this idea that you can wall yourself off no matter how wealthy you are, it's true to some extent, but there are limits to that. And, and climate change and pandemics are really good examples of how we're all connected and all need to act in the collective interest. Do you feel like as somebody sort of ascends that sort of socioeconomic ladder, and this could even be talked about sort of on a country by country basis, do you feel like that um, selfishness increases or do you think it's, you know, is it a, is it a revelation of their sort of in, you know, their root nature or is it a function of their circumstance or is it a function of their, their society that they come from? What do you think that is? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. Um, there's quite a lot of data saying that wealthier people um, drive more badly. You know, they don't, don't they donate to charity less. There's a lot of kind of rich people are more antisocial data. Um, now, did they become rich because they were more antisocial in the first place? And capitalism prioritizes antisocial, hyper-competitive behavior. I could make that case. Um, I think that those, you know, kind of grow, 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 and we've got to compete and we've got to destroy the other business, that kind of mindset that you see in financial services and in investment banking and a lot of big businesses is maybe part of the answer that we have valorized and um, respected particular kinds of personality traits that maybe aren't that social. We like people that are sort of leaders that are sort of authoritarian and opinionated and people will say, well, okay, he's kind of an arsehole, but he's really effective. He gets things done. It's a sort of hyper-masculine um, cliche way to behave, right? And so those are the le corporate leaders and the political leaders we have at the moment. Um, and so maybe that's part of the answer as well. You know, we, we valorize money. There's also a human tendency to um, say that, to think that people got what they deserve. So if you're rich, you deserve it. If you're poor, you must have done something wrong. And that's very kind of entrenched with us as well. So there's a lot of behavioral issues, I think, with human beings. Maybe this pandemic also causes a big rethink in terms of the, the kind of corporate leaders that we want to see and the kind of character traits we look for. I don't know. That would be a nice idea. Yeah, that would be a nice idea. <laughs> what do you think the corporate leader of the next decade is going to look like, even in light of this pandemic that we're going through? Well, I think, you know, all these um, things you can read about automation and what are the effects going to be on the future of work tend to all conclude that interpersonal skills are going to be the things that robots can't re replicate. And so sort of, I think negotiation skills, um, back to our long conversation about values and negotiating values and different needs and tensions inside the organization. So I think negotiation, man managing conflict, empathy, interpersonal skills more generally ought to become more elevated because a lot of other stuff that's more logical, rational, actually can be automated. Um, so that is, is maybe one way that we would like to see this go. I'm not a futurist. It could go a lot of very different ways. But if what we see and we are seeing, you know, for example, responsible business investment is doing very well compared to the rest of the stock market right now. If we see more of a shift towards responsible business, there is obviously a narrative tying pandemics to things like climate change, if we see real momentum behind that stuff, we could end up in a, in a much more positive place by the end of the 2020s that we wouldn't have got to without a crisis this big. I think business as, as usual is not an option, but we were carrying on with business as usual and now business as usual really isn't an option. Right. So the long, you know, there's a lot to play for right now. It's a, it's a completely fascinating time. It is a fascinating time. Tell me a little bit about um, ethical systems and your work there and how you kind of got into that game. Because I'm just fascinated by the focus of that organization. Oh, sure. So I'm about three and a half months in. Um, I was most recently working in sustainability and corporate responsibility, but before that in, in risk and corruption and compliance. So ethical systems is a research collaboration. So it is a bunch of academics, leading uh, professors at leading business schools in the US that work on behavioral ethics. So questions of culture and human behavior. So it was founded by my boss, Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist that's written a lot about moral and political psychology. We've got Dan Ariely and Adam Grant and Linda Trevino and Antrim Tembrunsel and really, people that have really shaped the field of business ethics. And what we are aiming to do primarily is to do proper research into what works um, inside organizations that is academically rigorous. So there are a lot of consultants selling solutions, do this, benchmark against your peers, copy best practice, and everything's going to be okay. We don't 
believe that that is necessarily the case um, and there needs to and a lot of behavioral ethics work has been done in the lab rather than in real companies so we are trying to work with real companies who would like to improve their cultures improve their leadership improve their teamwork improve their ethics improve the performance of compliance but base it on real you know you do an assessment you try something you assess afterwards we can make this academically defensible and the companies that are coming to us to do this work there are a lot in healthcare there are a lot in tech some in financial services but they are tend to be new young innovative fast-growing companies so that's our kind of mindset that a lot of the problems and most of the problems we've discussed on this call are unprecedented. We can't go to best practice and say, just do this thing about your value strategy and everything will be okay. So we think there is the perfect moment for these things, but there are a lot of companies that are very conservative and don't want to um, think in this way. So yeah, yeah systems is at NYU. We've got a lot of research on the website. Um, and we're working directly with companies on ethical culture challenges. So not to get too um, nerdy about this, but um, you have companies that are kind of already sold on this stuff coming to you. So what, what kind of selection bias is there in inherent to what you're measuring, if any? Um, you know what I'm I, saying? I think, well, I think we've really found, um, you know, I think so ethical systems have been around a long time and I think, found a lot of resistance from ethics and compliance teams to doing experimental research. And I think we can all understand that. Your job as a compliance officer is to deflect regulatory risk, to protect your organization. I can see a lot of compliance officers, well, we're not gonna go and experiment with our code of conduct. That sounds very risky. So I think part of it is which functions we're working with. We, get, we do much better working with senior leadership or HR, though some compliance officers are very open to these. Um, yeah piece of work and then I think big banks in particular are starting to really hire behavioral ethics researchers so um, really trying to kind of push further to because a lot of compliance best practice actually doesn't work so you know having very strong oversight for example and a lot of rules tends to make people switch off and switch off ethical reasoning and focus on evading the rules so a lot of what the DOJ and regulators want to see Unfortunately, it actually doesn't work. Um, so um, a lot of people have realized Which is so that. so interesting. I mean, it's just so interesting. I know. Um, a lot of people have realized this and are trying to kind of move the field forward. But I think we are finding that the companies that want to work with us are very focused on innovation um, and very focused on new models of management and new models of leadership. A lot of the things I've described. I think healthcare companies get it because they understand the R&D process. They understand this idea of experimentating and developing things. So they get it. And I think technology companies who are inherently open to doing new things and not relying on what, what the past is, are where we're getting, where we're getting the most company interest. But we, we um, are really delighted to work with anybody. What we want to, but wait, we want to be humble. We're not gonna come and say, oh, just do this, here's a debt, you do this, everything's gonna be great. Right. We want to try things and work with people, which is a very different mindset from a normal consulting mindset. We are ultimately research driven and we're trying to make what we come up with a public good so that everybody can learn from it. Yeah, I just love it. I love what you guys are doing. Um, I'm just fascinated by it all. And um, there's so much, you know, behavioral economics or behavioral psychology in the, the way that these policies that are written on paper are, you know, played out in the behaviors of the people that are supposed to be adhering to them. And Actually, there's, there's just, yeah, go ahead. No, I mean, very often it's back to this kind of whole organization argument, right? So the compliance officer may have a perfect compliance program in place. Sign this, don't pay bribes, don't violate the FCPA. You know, everybody's kind of signed up. It's very, it's a very well-managed process. But if what an employee, a particular sales employee, for example, is experiencing is the compliance officer is saying, sign these documents, don't break the law, don't pay bribes, whatever you do. 
and then their boss in their other ear is saying, make sure you grow by 25%. I don't want to hear it's too difficult. I don't want to hear there's corruption in that market. Figure make it out. Target, or you're not going to get paid. So back to this idea of different voices and uh, kind of divergent thinking within the same organization. So very often the issue is not that the compliance officer isn't doing an excellent job within the things under their remit. They are but they need to have oversight of incentives and strategy and who the company does business with, or at least a voice, at least a seat at the table, which I think is, is the whole purpose of your podcast. Yeah, that is the whole point. And I think to your point, once they get that seat at the table and once that light bulb is turned on at the top, they can do so much to, to create true harmony across these different areas. But if they don't have any, any, um, any power, yeah, and they're just writing documents and sending them around and they don't have a way to persuade the behaviors of the people that are supposed to be living these documents out, then they just, they turn into that caricature of a value statement that just shows up on the mission or, you know, that shows yeah. up on the website that nobody actually lives out. It's the same, same type of thing. Or it's like the, you know, the internal police let's, you know, let's avoid the boring guy who's going to roll out another procedure I have to adhere to. So I mean, as I'm sure you've experienced yourself with your, with your own work, the most effective compliance officers tend to be change agents and they tend right. to also have, you know, a lot of interpersonal skills and a lot of ability to influence. So maybe one of the things that the compliance industry should be thinking about is, again, increasing those kind of negotiation and influence skills and ability to act across the organization to really bring these different functions that have input on values but nobody owns nobody owns culture nobody owns values so a lot of it is about getting the machine to move more effectively and influencing the things that are outside your direct control well i think we could keep talking for two hours i just i love everything that you do i love what your organization does uh, i was like, so so excited to get you on um thank you um, so much for uh for joining us where can people find you and find more um more of your uh your literature more of the stuff that you know you you and your team are working on where can they find you online and so forth so uh, no one can see each other face to face anymore you can go to our website ethicalsystems.org we're in the middle of a rebrand it's going to look completely different at the beginning of april and you will see something uh much prettier but my contact details are on there, all the academics that we work with, um, anything that you need to know. Um, and you can find me easily on social media. I'm everywhere. So um, not difficult to get in touch. And I've got more time than I used to because I'm not commuting. So always happy to have a chat. Very good. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on today, Allison. I really enjoyed our time. I enjoyed how uh, generous you were with your perspective and uh, spending your afternoon with us. So thank you so much. Oh. Total pleasure. Have a lovely weekend.